The title of the sermon this morning is Living with God's Blessings. And uh, I'd just like to say up front, it's a blessing to have a voice because I was at the game last night. So I can, I can talk, I can't hear. So um, if, if you were there, you know what I mean, yeah. We are in a series, uh, you know, um, that includes this story. And sometimes when you take stories in the Bible, like this one, you, you just take them and you, you set them out there you look at the story, and then you try to figure out lessons for life, right? Nothing wrong with that. I don't mean to demean that approach. As a matter of fact, I'm using it. But sometimes we forget that little snippets like stories are a part of a bigger story. That's not always true in every piece of literature, but when you approach the Bible, it's always true. These stories tell a bigger story. So I thought this morning we would remind ourselves of where this is in the bigger story before we begin. The other thing is to remind you that we're in a series called Ancient Stories with Contemporary Truths, and we've been in the Old Testament for quite a while. When you think of the Old Testament and beginning there, you think of the beginnings. You, you begin with the story of Genesis, a wonderfully colorful and mysterious story of beginnings. But you know, actually, if you want to summarize the story of beginnings, it basically goes like this. God's the author of life. Humanity is created in the image of God. And sin separates and destroys. That's the story. That's the story of beginnings. That's what we capture as the essence of God's message to humanity. And it starts right away. God, the author of life, creates all things. God, the author of life, imprints His image on the soul of humanity. And humanity, the author of sin, really messes it up. And the story unfolds, and you see this humanity that God has perfectly made falling into all kinds of destruction and decay. And the destruction and the decay of sin is everywhere. It's, it's ecological destruction. It really is. That's part of the degradation of sin. It's relational destruction. It's the kind of destruction that is self-imposed that we bring upon ourselves with foolish, sinful decisions. Sin is everywhere. That's part of the story. But also as a part of this story, there is something deep within the heart of every human being that longs for things to be made right. We long for a time that we never have fully experienced, but a time that we somehow feel will be real. Um, I'm not a person who does Facebook, so don't look for me on there because I'm not out there. But my wife does Facebook, um, and she goes around and scouts and looks at people's stuff. And um, did I use the wrong word? I'm sorry, I'm not a Facebook person. Scouts, uh, stalks people? Okay, stalks, okay. She stalks people, and you know, you don't know when she's looking. Uh, that's the way Facebook works. So uh, last night, she was sitting on the couch with her iPad, and she was stalking. And on 
this particular occasion, she was stalking one of her former teachers and now current uh, director of children's ministry at ECC, Abra Clampett. So she was stalking Abra, and she ran across this story. Um, it's a story about Audrey, Abra's daughter. Um, yeah, and Andrew. It's your daughter too, sure. The story, the story goes this way. She, she said that um, Abra woke up, and she said to her mom, I had the most perfect dream. There was a prince, and I fell in love with him. I want to go back into my dream. <laughs> you know, I, I, that story, <laughs> I was working on a sermon, and I said to myself, that's it. <laughs> that's it in a tiny little mind of a child, the nutshell. It was perfect. I want to go back into my dream. I want to go back to paradise. I want things to be the way they're supposed to be. You know, this story begins by the destruction of that. But the story that we're telling ends with a promise that's still way out there. It's a promise that someday God's going to knit it all back together. He's going to take all the strands of the story that are just all over the place and tightly weave them together into paradise restored. And we'll go back to our dream. But until then, we hear a, a story that we know very well. A story of God calling people and sending them on journeys and giving them a mission. We early on in the book of Genesis hear the story of Abraham who was living down there in the birthplace of civilization. Down in that, what is now called modern Iraq, Tigris and Euphrates, the, the cradle of it all. And it was a wonderful place to live. I mean, high culture and wealth. And God called Abraham and he said, I, I want you to leave. Furthermore, I want you to follow me. I'm not telling you where you're going, but I'm going to send you to a land that you don't really know yet. Take a journey with me. And he took this huge arcing journey across the Fertile Crescent, way to the north, and then all the way straight south along the Great Sea until he lands in this place that we now call Israel. And God says, this is your land. I've given it to you. Abraham does what he can do with the land and has children. You know that story. Isaac comes along really late in life, and later Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And along the way, while Jacob and his 12 sons are living in the land that God had promised them, famine breaks out, and it's horrific. And as a matter of fact, Jacob and his sons end up going down even further south to Egypt, the breadbasket of the world, to find what they need. And you remember that Joseph's a part of that story? This amazing story, this tapestry of divine grace, and then they stay down there way too long. I mean, they weren't just guests. They just settled in. And after they were there an extended period of time, it got to the place that the people who first welcomed them in the land of Goshen, because actually Joseph was like a prime minister, the leader forgot all about those people and who they were and began to oppress them as slaves. And they cried out to God, and God said, I'll hear you. 
I'll answer you. And I'll do it through a deliverer called Moses. And Moses, by God's grace, is placed in exactly the right place at the right time from birth right up till his death. And he, he takes these people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, one miracle after another. He takes them right up to the edge of the promised land. And then God takes him to the top of a mountain called Nebo, and he, and he dies. And God buries him. And then from there, Joshua, the one given charge of Moses' responsibility, he takes the people into the land. They settle the land. They defeat their enemies. And Joshua reminds them of something really important. He says, my friends, Moses gave us some directives. And he said, follow God and all will be well. I'll keep you safe. I'll protect you. I will bless you. But if you break my covenant, I won't. In other words, if you walk away from me, I will let you go. If you say to me, God, I don't want you in my life, I'll be a perfect gentleman and say, okay, I'll step out. And then see what happens. Because when I do, all kinds of chaos ensues. Enemies from everywhere swarm in against you. Internally you have conflict. Your whole society will come unraveled because you've walked away from me. And the people say, that sounds horrible, Joshua. We get it. We'll stay with God. I mean, what dummy would want to go there? And then they do. Just like you and me. They walk away from God and God says, have it your way. And they're oppressed by their own sins and their enemies. And so the cycle of the judges begins. And we've been in there for a while. It's just the cycle of sin and decay and destruction and then redemption. A leader who comes back and calls them to God. And for a while they get it and they stay there and they're back into destruction and sin and despair again. The cycle continues. Now at this point in our story, we're at the end of Judges. We're at a new era. It's about ready to dawn in the passage you just heard read from 1 Samuel. But before we leave Judges, the author of the book of Judges summarizes the episode called The Judges with these words. The way it was in Israel is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the summary. That is chaos. No moral standard, no judgment, no call to righteousness, just whatever I want. My friends, sometimes we use the word hell in a variety of ways. Let me suggest that's hell. Being completely self-consumed with no moral standards. That's the summary. So into that world, enter 1 Samuel. At the beginning of this book, after giving us those words concerning the situation in Israel, we hear this story. We hear a story about Hannah and Elkanah husband and wife. They were from the hills. You know, kind of like the Kentucky of Israel or something like that. I don't know. 
It, it seems that way. We're not sure where the hills were. We, we debate where the hills were. But what it seems apparent is this, is they weren't from the center of the city. They weren't people of notoriety. They weren't bigwigs. People didn't know them. Hannah doesn't enter this story as a Deborah who's a judge of Israel and already has a standing. Hannah and Elkanah enter this story as no names, faithful people who are relatively unknown. And God says, out of their faithfulness and out of their misery, I'm going to pick them to raise up a new judge. And this new judge is going to be named Samuel. And this new judge is going to lead the people of Israel from this episode called Judges into this new era called the monarchy, where we have kings, and eventually to the era of King David. Hannah is clueless about this. I mean, before she has the child and after she has the child, she never sees the big story. All she knows is I'm barren. And her life is miserable because of it. Because that's the chief identity of a woman in this particular culture, to have children. And she has none. Not only does she have none, the other wife of her husband gives her constant grief over it, makes fun of her, and we can imply that the people around her looked down on her with scorn because that was traditional. Hannah is in a very humble circumstance, socially and personally, a barren woman. Oh, but there's one other thing, lest you didn't notice it in the text. It's God's fault. The text says, God closed her womb. It was no accident. Hannah herself continues to be faithful, humble, and prayerful. She makes a visit to Shiloh where the temple was at the time. They did this yearly at great cost to them. And on that occasion, she takes everything she has and is, which is humble servanthood, faithfulness, and prayer. And she takes them to the center of the spiritual life of Israel. God, I pray every day, can I insert this? I walk with you in the hills. Now I'm here in Shiloh. I'm at your altar. I've got to pray. Hear my voice. God, please, please rescue me. Give me a child. It's as though she shouts it, but without words. It's the cry of her heart with lips moving and no sound coming. And in the midst of that plaintive cry, in the midst of that humble situation, in the midst of that faithful heart, the chief spiritual authority for Israel walks in and rebukes her. How much more do I have to suffer, she must have thought to herself. I'm looked down on because I don't have children. Now the priest at Shiloh tells me I'm drunk. Eli says, woman, you're drunk. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And Hannah says, listen, old man, I'll tell you a thing or two. No, she doesn't. <laughs> That's what Bob would have said. But Hannah doesn't. She turns to him and says, sir, I'm not drunk. Your servant is brokenhearted. All I want is a child. 
the text doesn't tell us this, but I'd like to think that Eli was a gentleman and said, my daughter, I'm so sorry. I falsely accused you. <laughs> I didn't realize. Please accept my apology. Those are not quite the words, but you kind of get that. Basically, Eli says, oh, sorry. Didn't know. Now may God bless you and grant you your request. Now with that tiny little word from Eli, her life changes. She goes out rejoicing. She goes and worships with her husband. She's delighted by the gift of God through the word of Eli, the priest. She leaves, they go home, and she becomes pregnant. Oh, by the way, before she left, she had promised God, I would imagine routinely, God, if you give me this child, this child is yours. Lord, give me this child. I, I vow to you, there's going to be things that are going to be different in my life and in his no razor will ever touch his head. It's a Nazarite vow. And Samuel's born. And if we have our chronology correct, we only surmise that the weaning process took two to maybe three years. At two or three years old, Hannah brings back her child Samuel. Walks in to Eli and says, remember me? I'm the one with no child. Here's my boy. I'm turning him over to God. He's yours. Now, if you're a parent, you can't imagine that, right? Surely you can't. Just saying, take my kid. <laughs> Maybe a couple times when they were 16, I thought that, but it wasn't really real. I, but not when they're two or three. Are you kidding me? He turns, she turns him back over to Eli and to God. Did Eli even want him? <laughs> we don't know from the story. Did he know this was part of the deal? Would he have blessed her if he'd have known? Did Eli's wife say, hey, I don't need another kid. This kid's only three years old. Who's taking care of him? Did Eli struggle? with the kind of attention and affection that he had to give to Samuel? Were his sons jealous? After all, by the way, Samuel becomes the center of the life of Israel. Parts of the story we'll never know, but curious details I'd love to know. But that's the story in a nutshell. We stop there. We'll, we'll continue the story later. But what are the lessons from the story? The first one I say is this. There's lessons to be learned about living with difficult circumstances that are designed by God. Difficult circumstances are not always happenstance. Difficult circumstances are not always because you made bad choices. Difficult circumstances are not the luck of the draw every time. Difficult circumstances are not always the result of you sinning and being punished. Sometimes, in God's order, difficult circumstances are placed upon you by God. 
That's unequivocally clear. Not just here, but repeatedly throughout Scripture. So how do we approach difficult circumstances that seem, sometimes we can't even tell, but seem, to be the direct design of God? This is going to sound like way out there, but I hope to bring it down. Here's how we approach it. We say, this is for God's glory. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, quit being so pietistic, Bob. I, I don't say that every difficult circumstance I encounter. I just know that routinely it's true. There's this wonderful story in the life of Jesus where he was walking along the way with his disciples and they came upon a man who was born blind, been that way for 40 years. And the disciples said to Jesus, whose sin made this happen? Is it the fault of his parents or him? And Jesus looked at him and said, you don't get it at all. You're clueless. He wasn't born blind because of his sin or the sins of his parents. He was born blind and has been blind for 40 years so I could be glorified. And I'm saying, leave me out of that kind of blessing. I don't want 40 years of blindness for the glory of God, do you? That's what Jesus said. And then he healed him. And the man got up and walked and lived a normal life. But only after he was 40. For the glory of God. I'm thinking, I don't want to sign up for that. I wonder if the man said to himself, why me? 40 years? But you know what's wrong with our perspective? As usual, it's myopic. We just look right here. We count 40 years as a long time. The 40 years as the big story. No, the big story is this. What is the year? 2012. How many people have heard this story all over the world for almost 2,000 years? How many multiplied millions of people have come to a new realization of faith in God and the glory of God because this guy suffered for 40 years of blindness. How many? You can't count them. And let me ask you something, my friends. This man who now understands the perspective of reality from eternity, do you think he thinks that 40 years was worthy of being called suffering? He sees it as a blip in time. He sees it as a part of the grander plan for the glory of God. He sees it. He sees it as redemptive. Not just for himself, but for millions of people. For the glory of God, Jesus says, that's what his suffering was about. So we learn from this story and many others the difficult circumstances which are sometimes designed by God are for His glory 
and we get to be a part of it. Second thing we learn from this story is how to live without the blessing. Right? Hannah didn't live with the blessing all the time. She lived without the blessing for a long time. Or let me put it another way. There's a whole lot of barren women who pray Hannah's prayer who never get the blessing. How do you live without the blessing? You live without the blessing by allowing suffering to shape you and shape you and shape you. You live without the blessing by allowing suffering to shape you so that you can turn outward and help to shape others. Some of the most profound ministry that people have ever experienced from another human being come through the prism of suffering. Someone has suffered deeply and only that person can minister to someone else who also suffers. That's how you live without the blessing. (laughs) Because God is sovereign and he's doing his work. The third uh, question or lesson from this uh, story is living with the blessing. How do you? Well, I think the, the bigger picture is this. You live with the blessing realizing that the blessing is not really about you. <laughs> you live with the blessing realizing that you're just a part of the story. You live with the blessing by realizing that Hannah and Samuel are tiny little cogs in the wheel of God's great design, this story that you and I have inherited. You live with the blessing without being selfish about the blessing or prideful about the blessing. You realize the blessing is for everyone. You also realize that the gift, not just this one, but every gift is from God. And like Hannah, if we follow her example, we take it all and give it back. Very few things um, about our world suggest that we live that way. We live for ourselves, about ourselves. We're consumerists who eat it up ourselves. And God says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. And I want you to share it with everyone. I want you to share the blessing. Don't hang on to it like it's your own. Hold it loosely and be ready to give it back to God. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, you, you're not even your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body, with everything you are, because you're God's prized position, possession to bless others. I think that's the perspective that Hannah had at the end of the day. And it's the perspective that will bring great meaning to life and maybe 
even more blessings from God. Even when we don't know the end of the story. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the end of the story. We know the final chapter, Lord. And you gave us just a little window into what it is, but you didn't, you didn't fast forward us to it. You gave us the opportunity to be shaped by this grand story. And Lord, even though we're not Samuel and Hannah, and even though books are not going to be written about us, we're still a part of the story. We're people that you have called people that you have chosen, people that you have brought into your grace, which sometimes means the pressure of circumstances and even pain and suffering. We just thank you, Lord, that you're shaping us and that you're making us part of a bigger story. So, Lord, we pray for patience, that you'll help us to surrender to you, for patience, that you'll help us to bless others, for patience to believe that in the end you're going to put all these threads of the story together and we'll re-enter the dream that's in the soul of every human heart. Well, Lord, we thank you for just a glimpse of the dream. We thank you for the presence of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will motivate us to walk with you. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.